Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you. Welcome to Four Corners Church. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm so, so honored that you're here. If you're our guest, a special welcome to you. Hey, Four Corners, for the last couple months, we've been doing something special around here. We've been setting aside part of the giving that we give to our church. You guys have been doing this above and beyond your normal giving. You've been giving what we call a Christmas offering, and it typically runs about Thanksgiving through the end of January. And we set a goal publicly here in this room of $80,000. And as of today, we're at $92,080. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Now, if you're a regular attender, you know that that goes to fund all kinds of missions, endeavors, and ministry initiatives. It does incredible work, some in our building, a lot of it out of our building. And over the next few weeks between now and Easter, I'm going to show you mechanically how that money is making a difference. And so if you want to see how it's all going about, be here on Sunday mornings. I'll give you some of those uh, updates and, and stuff like that. But if for some reason you didn't have a chance to make it in, tomorrow you'll see all those categories, the Christmas offering disappear from the online giving and all that. So I guess you could still give something if you want. But uh, bottom line is, because of your generosity, a lot of great things are going to happen this year in our building, in our community, literally around the world. And I'm just so honored to be a part of a church family that is so generous and gracious and kind. Not only do you meet our budgets around here and allow us to do great ministry, but you go above and beyond every year. And this has been your track record, and I'm just uh, so thrilled. Um, and I'm going to tell you, my heart's just kind of pounding out of my chest. This is my son up here uh, leading worship. And I just want to thank you for your investment in him. When John Ryan was a year old, we started this church. Sorry. And um, he used to throw up on the nursery workers every week. <laughs> he really did. That's the truth. And uh, you guys helped us raise our kids. And um, not only am I proud that you're a generous church, but I'm just honored to do life with you. And uh, we're by no means a perfect church. Um, there's a lot we can do better. But one thing we've done consistently well is we have invested in the next generation. And our Christmas offering is going to do some of that as well. And so your pastor's heart today is just full, um, gratitude and uh, the love of God and just love for my church family. So just thank you so much. Hey, if you have your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3 as I get my composure here. All right. Titus chapter 3. You can open up your message notes as well. <clears throat> I want to um, take you through a passage of scripture as we begin a brand new message series called Grace That Is Greater. Grace That Is Greater. And for the next five weeks, we're going to center around an important biblical theme called grace. And um, this is central to our faith. There's not a lot of things in the Bible that the Bible says has power, in and of itself has power. And God has power. The blood of Jesus is specifically mentioned to have power. But the Bible says this in Romans chapter 1. Paul writing, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has at its core a power that doesn't just redeem lives, it literally empowers people. And at the core of this gospel story is this concept of grace. The acronym I was taught as a child for grace is a very simple thing that maybe you can learn. It's God's, I have forgotten it. I'm going to have to walk over here 
to my notes. Does anybody remember the acronym for grace? This is one of the most embarrassing moments. The most embarrassing moment was when my fly was down while I was preaching. That really happened. And up here on the screen, it flashed, no joke, your fly is down. That's the most embarrassing moment. (laughs) God's relentless love for us, grace, God's relentless love for us, on account of, A, on account of Christ's expressions. God's relentless love for us on account of Christ's expression. This is what grace is for us. It's God's unmerited favor given to us because we could not earn it. We could not live up to it. We would never be good enough. It wasn't just about cleaning up our moral lives. But God came to us literally while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and brought us to new life through Christ, not by anything we did so we can boast, but only because he loved us that much. That is the power of grace. And I can't think of a more clear passage of Scripture than Titus chapter 3 to help us understand one of the most important, most powerful, and poignant, impacting moments that happens to us. One of the most important things that grace does in the life of a believer. i got, got to warn you today that as we work through this passage that I think for you will be eye-opening. It certainly was for me as I went through it again in the last couple weeks. I think as we go through it, you're going to have to put your seatbelt on just a little bit. Now, typically around here, when I'm dealing with stuff, I say, hey, you can relax. Don't put on your seatbelt. It's not going to be a bumpy ride. But Titus chapter 3, while it gives us a poignant picture of grace, also takes us over a handful of emotional speed bumps. And maybe you can relate to them before I even read the passage to you. Every once in a while, there'll be a news story. Something will happen around the world. Um, There'll be a typhoon. I remember that a few years ago. Uh, There'll be some challenge sociologically. Somebody does some crime, hurts a lot of people. Some, you know, emotionally deranged person hurts a lot of people. And they'll interview people, right? So if you're from the South, you hate it when they do this. Because every time, you know, there's a tornado hits a trailer park, they find somebody that, you know, has the deep southern draw and doesn't know how to, you know, put together sentences well. And they interview them as a spokesperson for the community and how things impacted them. You know what I'm talking about? Well, the other thing that happens a lot is that sometimes they'll find a Christian when some calamity happens, and they'll interview that Christian, and I sit there and I watch the television set and I cringe at the kinds of things that are put into the mouths of Christians, especially at Difficult seasons of life, like um, in the shooting in Orlando a few years ago, when a man who was emotionally deranged walked in and shot up some people. And so they interviewed a handful of people. One of them was a Christian. I remember sitting there watching my television, and and this Christian says, you know, um, I don't mean no disrespect, which of course is a clue that in the next few minutes are going to be incredibly disrespectful. But, you know, what do you expect when people behave that way? I mean, after all, God says this kind of behavior is wrong, and that's just kind of what happens when you do these kinds of things. Or, if, again, some calamity, natural catastrophe happens, somebody somewhere will be interviewed on television, or they'll write in a post, and it'll go viral, that what's really going on is God is extracting judgment upon this group of people because of their sins. And I sit down and I watch that stuff, and 
I understand why it is that sometimes when people think about Christians, the images that come to mind, the emotions that come to mind when people think about Christians sometimes is not very pleasant and it's not very endearing. And as a guy who likes to study the New Testament, I'm, I'm caught with this conflicting idea that around the time that Jesus walked around, the founder of our faith, the beginner of Christianity, when he walked around, people were very drawn to him, but very often they're not drawn to Christians at all today. This passage that we're going to talk about, that at the core of it is a central message about grace, and it's an explanation of the gospel, deals with one of the dynamics that causes this cultural bias against Christians that all too often is earned. In this church, we get a lot of people who come to our church because they've had a difficult or rough experience at perhaps at another church. There's basically three categories of people that come to our church. Now, this is not everybody. Maybe it's one of isn't you. But parents start having kids, and uh, they want to take their kids to church. They try us. They like our kids' program. We do a great job with that, by the way. Incredible team, incredible leadership, always have. And they like it and stay. So they go to church for their kids. Another group of people that, that come to our church are people who have relationships with people in the church, and they're invited, and so kind of they, they piggyback on that friendship, and they come into our new uh, social group here, and they build some friends, and the Lord begins to work in them as well, and that, that's awesome. But there's a third group that kind of comes to our church. It's pretty frequent. That's people who've had a rough experience at other churches. They've had a rough experience of other churches, and so they come here, sometimes after an extended break from church at all, and they come here, and their hope is, is that maybe this experience will be different. And perhaps they, I've heard this, they see a motto outside the door, and with a little bit of jadedness, they see real love now, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, I'm sure right, of course, but maybe, and so they give it a try. And one of the reasons why church experience can be so difficult has to do with the themes that are introduced in this passage right here. And so it's all about grace. It's all about the gospel. But there's a lot of other stuff that happens. And this passage specifically speaks to Christians. So if you're not a Christian today, you're off the hook of this stuff. But if you are a Christian, the apostle, not the apostle, Yes, the I'm struggling this morning, friends. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, who is a pastor in a Christian church, and he says to him, these are the things I want you to have in mind around leadership, around the instruction that you provide, around the life that you encourage. And he writes from the vantage point of a senior saint who's had a lot of experience leading and directing churches. So he writes to Titus, this youngish pastor, and he says, you need to make sure that these priorities get your time and attention. Because if they don't, there's going to be a, if you'll give me this word, there's going to be a brand of Christianity that is divorced from the roots of Christianity. There'll be a flavor to that church that you're leading that will be distasteful when the gospel is supposed to bring life to people. One of the attributes that Christians are called to exhibit is this idea of saltiness. Now, not saltiness in terms of coarse language, no, but angry. This is, this is the old world saltiness, that salt was this very precious spice because it enhanced flavor. It made things desirable. And Christians were supposed to be both light and salt in the world. The flavor of Christianity that's supposed to exist in every church is this enticing, good-to-taste, feels-awesome, gives-life kind of experience 
but too often it goes dark. So why does that happen? I believe what we're going to discuss today is that what occurs is, is that Christians too often forget the foundation of our faith. We, you, I, too often forget the foundation of our faith, that Christ came and rescued us, that we did not do it ourselves. He gave to us this incredible gift of grace. Grace. And I think sometimes we forget it. The Apostle Paul thought that Christians forgot it, so he writes these words in Titus 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So this is a general set of instructions for Christians. And as Paul often does, when he gives a general set of, in, of instructions, he follows up after the general instructions with the big why that should happen. He starts with what we should do often and then turns around and then lays the foundation as if he anticipates a lot of people having questions, well, why should we do that? I hear you. It makes sense. But help me understand what we're doing here anyway. So very often in his writings, he'll give a command, he'll give an instruction. But what he does following is, is he explains the motivation and the heartbeat behind the instruction. This is, by the way, decent leadership. It's very good parenting, especially as kids get older. Understanding the why behind something helps somebody get on board. So here's Paul's why that we should treat people with respect. Why it is we should be able to disagree without being rude. Why it is that we can state our beliefs without being offensive in our character and personality. He says, verse 3, At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. So when you're dealing with the world, when you're dealing with people, keep in mind, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now this is a trustworthy saying, and I want to you distress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then, but avoid foolish, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, in this letter, Titus, we have the private correspondence between two leaders who know what it is to shoulder the burden of trying to help people grow spiritually. Of standing 
in the place of a parent, of a shepherd, of a guide, as a fellow traveler, as a brother, and feeling the weight of trying to help a group of people move forward spiritually. And so the words are not couched to be politically correct. They're not couched to be sensitive to everybody that may read them. This is a private correspondence between leaders about the challenges that happen in leading people towards Jesus. And Titus has to be reminded by Paul to say to people explicitly, make sure you tell people that how they treat other people is going to impact their spiritual life. And if they forget that, remind them of this key truth, that they too were once just like everybody else, that they too were once pre-Christ. They too were once unforgiven. They too were once, and then he uses all kinds of words to describe what life without Christ, pre-Christ, was like. And Paul's making the argument that if you'll, uh, if you'll remember what it was like a little bit pre-Christ, it might provide for you a foundation for how you could treat other people. See, very simply, recipients of God's grace are supposed to be dispensers of grace. Recipients of the kindness of God are supposed to be dispensers of the kindness, the kind of kindness that God exhibits. People who are walking in the light of the love of Christ are supposed to walk with love towards everybody else. Now, this is written at a time when these Christians were under some significant attack. Attack from both other various sects of religious belief and from a legitimate authority of Rome. There's real persecution happening here. And Paul begins his words by reminding them to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be ready to do good even in a world where all kinds of bad things are happening around you. Now, not to be silly here. But if we were talking about these people today, we might be using words like this. That they lived in a world where it was easy to be triggered, where it's easily to be offended. Because they were the minority sect. They didn't have any political clout, so to speak. They had no real economic means. And yet Paul is telling them, because you were recipients of the kindness of God, in a world where you're constantly put upon, you're going to have to work hard to remember you were a recipient of grace so that you can exhibit grace to other people. It's going to be difficult when life leans on you, when people are unkind to you, when people are unfair to you, it's going to be difficult to remember this, but you need to remember that when you were at your worst, it was at that very moment that Christ came and died for you. So Paul starts with a pretty ugly description of what life is like. Pre-Jesus. And I want us to walk through that for a minute, not to take a, dark through the, uh, a walk through the dark side of our lives, but to literally remind ourselves for just a few moments of just how powerful this gospel is. The first blink on your message notes is, is that the power of the gospel extends to how we think and feel about people on the outside, how we treat them, and even how we feel about them on the inside. So let's talk about a handful of these comments. That Paul makes. If you look with me, if you don't mind, at verse number three. At one time, we too were 
foolish, foolish. Now, the word literally means ignorant or warped. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, was writing about this passage in his commentaries, what we call commentaries now at the time, they were more just his journals. He literally says that what's happening here is is that our hearts have curved inward. We're foolish about spiritual things. Before Jesus Christ, the truth is is that we didn't just walk in darkness. The truth is is we loved the darkness that we walked in. We were drawn towards things that weren't spiritually alive. We were captivated. Our imaginations were captivated by things that can be incredibly dangerous to us physically, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. Think about, for instance, a time when maybe you were a teenager or somebody you know. And somebody comes to them and they offer them their first drink of alcohol. It's illegal. They know it. But it's enticing. It feels so adult. And it's not that they're evil through and through, right? No, no, no. That's not what they're saying here. Even very good, reasonable young people can get caught up in this, but there's something enticing, and they're bent inward, and they want, and they know better. They've been taught, but they're drawn towards the thing, or whatever they think the thing's going to promise to give them. The first time a person smokes a cigarette, right? Many of you in the room have wrestled with that, given that up. And I've talked to several of you who are going through it. And you say, I never knew when I started that this thing that felt so free and rebellious and adult would ultimately trap me. And I've worked so hard to break free from it. You could have known that. It's all around you. (laughs) But we tend to be foolish with life. That's what Paul's saying. That pre-Jesus, here's what it's like. We are foolish. And then he says, we're disobedient. And it's not just that our, that our morality got distorted. We even disobeyed the things that we knew to be right. One of my favorite writers to read, a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer, he's been dead for about 50 years now, and he wrote about Christian apologetics. He used to say it this way. Imagine that you had a tape recorder around your neck. Now, if you're under 25, a tape recorder is this device that records sound, all right? It's like a phone when you hit record. Imagine you had a tape recorder around your neck, and every time you use the word ought, she ought to, or he ought to, or she should, or they should, every time you did it, the tape recorder automatically turned on and recorded just that segment of your conversation. Francis Schaeffer says, one day we're going to stand before God, and he's going to, all he would have to do is press the, record, or the play button on our tape recorder and play back for us all the times we said should and ought and they should. And he says that would be enough right there. That's all we need for each one of us just by our own words to be condemned and shown to be incredibly hypocritical. As we put all these oughts on other people that we never even lived up to ourselves. We're disobedient. We're drawn towards going the wrong way is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. This doesn't seem the most enjoyable walk to walk through these descriptors of life pre-Christ. But for Paul, what he's hoping happens and what I hope happens to you is as you reflect with me for just the next few minutes on the dark side of life pre-Jesus, that it will remind you just how sweet and wonderful and kind the grace of God that was extended to you and to me really is. We were disobedient. We were foolish. We were deceived. We were led astray. 
enslaved by all kinds of passions. So our hearts got into a condition that we were susceptible to deception. It's not even that we were honestly tricked. It's that sometimes we wanted to be tricked. Sometimes when I'm dealing with teenagers, many of you know I used to teach them. I have raised a few myself. And sometimes when we would begin to press things, a teenager would say something to me like this. You know, I just hang out with the wrong crowd and they have a negative influence on me and I find myself not doing the things I don't really want to do. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. But the other side of the truth is this. Is, no, you hang out with those people because you like those people better than you like the other crowd. There's a personal responsibility. It's not always just the influence of the group coming on you. And you and I, pre-Jesus, made decisions on our own that were a symptom of our ignorant foolishness. And we chose to go the wrong way, sometimes knowing full well what we were doing. Now, maybe we didn't know all the negative impact it would have, but we knew full well it wasn't right for us. This is the grip of sin. My mentor used to be famous for this line. He would say, sin will make you stupid. And it does. Haven't you seen it? And without looking around the room, haven't you seen it in your own self? This is the point the Apostle Paul is trying to make. That sin is enslaving. It feels so free. Rebellion feels like freedom until it grabs you and it won't let go. This is true for all the addictions that adults struggle with, but it's also true spiritually. We are enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. He says that we were living in malice and envy, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. The Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, whatever you idolize, you eventually demonize. And this is why, by the way, it's so ironic the way this works. This is why so many people end up, who start with great marriages, end up with really difficult and despicable marriages. They put all their hope and trust in that person. They believe that person's going to be their pathway to full fulfillment. That person completes them. And when they live with them long enough to discover just how difficult it is for another person to complete you, just how horrible a God your spouse will make to you, when that idol comes crashing down, disappointment and bitterness sets in. That's why, again, some marriages that start off so well end up so painful. It's why sometimes this very struggling with malice and envy, jealousy can run rampant and it's difficult to encourage or celebrate another person's success because deep down you want it to happen to you. Everything we idolize, all those things we really, really, really want, we're driven by, if we're not careful, pre-Jesus, they literally come to enslave us. By the way, this isn't just one or two people. Paul is explaining that this is the path of everybody. Again, it's not that these people, us, me, you, don't do a few good things. It's that pre-Jesus, we are caught in a snare. We kick and we struggle, but we can't break free. There's hatred at work. One writer says that everybody you can't forgive, at the core of that, there is a hatred at work brewing in you. Left unchecked is going to take you to a dark place. 
And we talk about these things psychologically. We talk about them sociologically. We talk about them with our friends. But from a spiritual perspective, all that's going on here is that sin has corrupted and brought death to everything that it touches. We make ourselves, if we're not careful, slaves to the very things that used to excite us as we thought about them. One of my favorite pictures of the destructive nature of sin and how blind we can be to it is the story of Dorian Gray. Read it in high school, didn't think much about it, but I've returned to this story a hundred times in my life and in in my ministry. So if you don't know the story, here's how it goes. A young, handsome man named Dorian Gray decides to have his portrait painted. When he gazes at this portrait, he discovers how beautiful he really is. It's a kind of a study in arrogance and pride as well. And then he realizes what's going to happen from this point on is that beautiful picture is going to stay the way it is, and I'm going to age. And he dreams for just a moment. Wouldn't it be awesome if I could stay the way I am, handsome, debonair, socialite, and if instead of me aging, my picture could age? And as often happens in novels, the thing you wish for happens. So he goes through life. And he doesn't even realize that the picture hanging in his attic is aging with time. He kind of forgets about it. But everywhere he goes and everything he does, he stays the same, still looks awesome, handsome young socialite. But unbeknownst to him, the picture of him that's aging begins to show the telltale signs of the choices he's making, of the life he's living. It doesn't just age because of the timeline. When he makes a cruel comment, the mouth on the portrait twists into a cruel grin. Never shows on his face in his physical form, only on the picture. Dorian's hatred for a rival on the picture, the eyes kind of narrow in with a, with a snarl. And when Dorian eventually murders a man, the hands on the portrait drip in blood. He looks fine. And then finally, Dorian recognizes upon looking at the portrait that his life has been tainted. That while he shows no outward experience, internally, that picture represents what's really going on inside of him. And he despises the picture so much, he slashes it with a knife. And the next scene of the novel is he wakes up and he's been stabbed to death. By the way, this is what the Apostle Paul says has happened to us. You may, and I may be able to hide what's going on on the outside, but in, uh, uh, yeah, how it is expressed on the outside, but inside of us, something profound is happening when sin has had its reign in our life. Now, if you go out today to to dinner, and they ask you how church was today, you get to tell them it was great. We talked about hell and the effects of sin on everybody. That's what you can tell them. So it's not necessarily the most encouraging message until you come to the most important words of our passage today. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, this is the turning point of the entire passage. This is where we get to that powerful gospel message that is grace infused. It's the word but. This is such a powerful word in the Bible. Humankind had sinned, but God chooses Noah to bring rescue. The children of Israel were enslaved, but God raised up Moses. All of the castaways from the land of Israel brought to Babylon. We're turning towards Babylon. God's, but God raised up Daniel and the three Hebrew children. 
The world is darkened with hope, without hope, but God raised up prophets. 400 years of silence, but God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world. This but God thing dynamic in scripture is so powerful. And Paul implores it and uses it right here in this passage. All this darkness, the effect of sin all around us that has touched every single human life. Your children, my children. Your neighbors, my neighbors. Your parents, my parents. You and me. That is our destiny, except for verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now, before verse number 4, when we're in verse 3 with all the ugly stuff that's happening because of sin, I'm the only actor. God's not a part of that. But when you get to verse 4, God is the only actor, and we have nothing to do with it. This is grace. God shows up simply because he's kind, simply because he's God, simply because he's loved. And the Bible tells us that all this ugliness was happening to us, but because of the kindness and love of God, he showed up and he rescued us. So what was my part in salvation? I did all the sinning. And what was God's part? He did all the saving. That's how that works. This is grace at work. And not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It wasn't the goodness in my heart that led to salvation, but it was love in his. So I owed nothing. I, owed, I gained nothing by all of my work. I owed everything to him, and he came and paid that debt. He brought mercy, which is God withholding from us everything that we deserved. And how did he do it? By the washing, the Bible says. That he saved us, not because of right things we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth. This reminds me of the story in the Old Testament of Naaman the leper. And he's got body sores all over. And he's told to go dip into the muddy waters of the Jordan seven times. This is a precursor to baptism. The, the muddy water doesn't heal him. The obedience of following God's direction, and when he dips himself, he comes up the seventh time perfectly clean. It reminds me of the baptism we're going to have next week right here on this stage. And there's nothing special about the water. It's just Butler County water, right? That's it. But something happens when an, a person who, is, who has encountered the grace and the power of God and has submitted their life to him happens when they go under the water, and we're reminded of the washing that happens. It's a washing of regeneration. This is a rebirth that happens to a person because of God's goodness at work in them. So Greek philosophers in Paul's day, by the way, would have gone nuts when Paul used this word of regeneration because they loved it. In the Greek thought, we're constantly being reincarnated. You have a life, then you get reincarnated, you try better, you have a life. Sounds familiar to a lot of other systems of thought. So this was a word that they used to describe this process, how you get better over time through these various... Um, you know, reincarnations that you go through. Paul grabs hold of that word that was part of the everyday common dialogue in the primary religious thought of his day, and he says, no, 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 let me tell you what happened. You don't get regenerated over and over again as you experience life over and over again. What happened is, once and for all, Jesus Christ brought life by being raised from the dead, and his regeneration, one and only ever going to happen, is applied to our life, and so the life of Christ becomes a part of you. Now think about this. 
At some point in the future, God is going to make every wrong right, restore everything that's ever gone wrong, make every justice correct, and all that stuff's going to happen in the future. But every single time a person turns from their sins and trusts Christ for salvation, God takes the power that's going to make everything right at the end of time, and he brings that end of time reality and applies it to your heart and my heart here and now. So at the very moment of salvation, all the power of God that's going to make everything right comes into our life and makes everything right in the moment. So salvation wipes away the penalty of sin. It resurrects a dead life. I can imagine as Paul is writing this, he's kind of amping up because he spends a lot of words. And whenever Paul gets excited about something in his letters, his words just flow on and on and on. And there's, there's a lot of words here talking about the power of what's happening when somebody experiences regeneration or new birth. Something powerful happens in them. They're renewed by the Holy Spirit. Their hearts are retrained, brought back, literally from the death to new life. And this happens not because of any work we could do. It happens only because of the grace of God. So the truth is, is when somebody comes into a church building, they don't need more morality. Maybe they do need to clean up their life. Maybe they'd be better for it. But the church doesn't do a great job of making people who are immoral moral. When the church is the church, the church does a great job teaching people about the power of God who takes dead people and makes them alive. In fact, you want to watch Christianity go bad in a home? You want to watch Christianity go bad in a church? Make it all about being just nicer people without the power of the gospel at work to actually empower people who are dead to live the life that God has called them to live. Trying harder is not the gospel. Cleaning up is not the gospel. Laying aside sin and habits is not the gospel. The gospel is, is that God comes to you and me who were dead and incapable. And he gives us his own spirit and breathes new life into us. And it not only pardons our sin, but it gives us power to live the life that he called us to live. This is the gospel. Everything else is playing around the edges. And the problem is, is if you play around the edges too much with somebody, you can inoculate them to the real power of the gospel. You give them all the niceties of Christianity and you never talk about the truth of sin. Somebody can think at the core what's really going on is we just have to be nice to each other. And then when they hear somebody read a passage from the Bible about sin, they think of that person as an old-timey kind of person, an irre irrelevant kind of person even a hate-filled kind of person. But there is no gospel at work until there are sinners in need of it. You can't deeply value salvation until you understand the depth of your sin. And this is why we've had some cleaned-up people over time who weren't really regenerated people. And certainly, I would rather deal with cleaned-up nice people than Un, you know, uncleaned up, rough people. But it's not nice people that make it to heaven. It's not kind people who make it to heaven. That's not the gospel. In fact, there's going to be a whole lot of unkind people in heaven. In fact, there are going to be murderers and adulterers and liars and thieves. There are going to be people who knew the truth and rejected it. There are going to be people who knew the right way and went the wrong way. 
But at some point, they bowed their knee and accepted the love of God offered by the work of Jesus Christ. And that radically changed them in their nature. Sometimes that nature was changed and it began to express itself on the outside in profound ways. That's what's supposed to happen. Other times, the change on the outside was slow coming. And when looking at it from the outside without knowing about the inside, you might even wonder if it was real. But this is where God does his deep work. So that what happens is, is that we are then saved from our sins. So if you don't have sins, there's nothing to be saved from. So again, Martin Luther, who I've quoted already, he talks about the power of this. That without a sinner, there is no Savior. Without brokenness, there is no wholeness. Without some terrible nature to be redeemed, there isn't a testimony of the grace of God at work. Now, this is not the kind of thing that we're supposed to spend all of our time thinking about. But every once in a while, it's important to come back to the fact that you weren't all that awesome. Neither was I. And it's in fact because you weren't so awesome and you couldn't fix yourself that God sent his one and only son to die for you and for me. And when we remember that, Paul's whole point is that when you remember that, it gives us the ability then to look at other people and extend to them grace, the kind of grace that we have received ourselves. This becomes the foundation for how Christians are supposed to treat one another. I'm not supposed to treat you nice because you're a nice person. I'm not supposed to be respectful to you because, you know, you're respectful to me. I'm supposed to be respectful to you as a human being made in the image of God because my Savior rescued me from the pits of hell. And he gave me something I did not deserve. And because I'm a recipient of so great a gift, I'm not supposed to withhold that gift as I interact with you. So kind or not, from me, you're supposed to get respectful engagement. This is what Paul was saying to the believers that Titus led. And what he was encouraging Titus to remind them of is that, look, in a world that puts on you, that puts weight on you, that's offensive, that's triggering, your point is remember that you were rescued you don't come flexing your rights. No, as an American citizen, do it all you want. Fine. But as a believer, I don't come flexing my rights. I come, I come flexing the grace of God that was offered to me. This allows me then to be respectful when I disagree. This allows me to treat people who have harmed me with general decorum. This allows me to offer forgiveness where relationships have been broken, not even because the other person did it so well, but because God, my Father, loved me so deeply. So we're called to the Christian life, not simply for what it gives us, but because of what we've been given. Not because other people pave a path for us to treat them a certain way, but because God paved a path for us to receive all that he had for us. And on that pathway, we can begin to reflect the kindness and the graciousness of God. So he says, this is a trustworthy saying in verse 8, and I want 
to stress these things so that those who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody else. On your message notes, the second blank, the guy I've been quoting, Reformer Martin Luther, and then, uh, he says that in the New Testament, imperatives, which are commands, do this, always flow out of indicatives, which are statements of fact. So commands always follow fact in Scripture. Now the fact is, you and I were redeemed. So the command is, then be a person who extends the grace and kindness that you were given as you interact with people. So before the gospel tells you how to behave or who to become, it tells you who to behold. If you're struggling with the way you treat people, if you're getting some feedback that on occasion it's not going so well, it's possible that on occasion, maybe now, you need to come back to beholding the one who was so kind and gracious and smiled on you when you were in a dark place. Because beholding moves your heart to become righteous. And when you become righteous through Christ, you move towards doing righteousness more naturally. It's not that you try hard enough and then ultimately you come to Christ. No, 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 no. He came to you. On occasion, people accuse Christians of treating Jesus like a crutch, helping them limp through life. And I want to suggest to you that's a completely wrong metaphor. The right metaphor is Jesus is a stretcher. You can't move at all till he comes and picks you up. But because he has, let that move you towards other people. So there is no Christianity understood that has received this kind of generosity that isn't generous in return. Whenever you meet a Christian that isn't generous in return with emotion and time and money and all that goes into a relationship, what you're seeing is a Christian who hasn't gotten it or perhaps needs to be reminded of the power of grace that was at work in them that rescued them. The biggest lie of our culture, it is that it tells us that to reject God leads to freedom, but it doesn't. And what feels like freedom enslaves us to deeper bondage. But that is the very bondage that God came to set us free from and to bring to us what Jesus says in John 10.10 is an abundant life. So if you're a believer today and you're not living the abundant life, I want to call you back to the cross today. To that place where there was a great exchange. You handed God nothing of value. And he gave you the most priceless, awesome gift anybody could ever receive. The theologian Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, too many people think lightly of their sin and therefore they think lightly of the Savior. And he who has stood before God, convicted and condemned, with a rope about his neck, is the man who weeps for joy when he is pardoned. To hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to love and to live to honor, to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. So again, in your message notes, it's hard to appreciate the work of a Savior without looking honestly at the sinner. So what do people who look honestly at the cross remember? Two key phrases. The first one there in your message notes is the phrase, but God. So every time the enemy tries to remind you of your past, you remind him, but God stepped in. 
Every time the enemy comes and tries to dredge up your history, you remind him that God rewrote your present, your past, and your future. That phrase, but God, not just changed the stories in the Bible, but it changed the life of every man and woman in this room. It radically wiped away. I shared with you uh, in the past uh, a few weeks a story about me waking up in an ambulance and how powerful the realization was that I couldn't do anything for myself. I was completely unconscious. I had no ability to rescue myself. If people had not rescued me, there was nothing I could do for myself. And waking up in a hospital bed later, not even remembering what happened, and remembering that some kind people reached into a water, pulled me out, called the ambulance. They came and got me. And I had no knowledge of any of it because I couldn't do it myself. This is what Christ has done to us. This is your but God moment. The other key phrase here, Paul uses to begin our words. The phrase is, you too. This is the key phrase to be kind as a Christian. So when you encounter somebody in the world or in the church who isn't awesome yet, who doesn't live with this kind of generous attitude and this kindness and this flavoring that leaves a sweet taste in your mouth, we're to remember that we had our pre-Jesus life as well. And Paul writes to Titus, when you lead people, remind them. Not to help them wallow in their sin, not to make them feel terrible, but to remind them how great a salvation has been worked for them. And the implication here is pretty serious. If you understand this work, then you can avoid all the other stuff that tends to entangle people. The things people debate are different now than they were back in Titus's day. Back in his day, it was about genealogies and arguments and quarrels because of these things that they were going through and Paul says, hey, those things are unprofitable. Today, it's other you know, minor points of theology, perhaps, or the way church is done, or a style of music, or a particular book, or whatever. The bottom line is, is it comes down to how are we loving people as God loved us? It's such a big deal that the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, you're supposed to warn a person who doesn't seem to want to get this. Warn a believer who doesn't want to get this. Only warn them a few times and then put a boundary around them so that they can't infect everybody else. You know, warn them once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. Because Christians who act this way are undermining the very cause of the gospel. Christians who act in these ways, disrespectful, unkind, unforgiving, ungenerous. When people act this way towards others, what happens is, is the power of the gospel, as it appears to people who are watching, seems to be put under a shadow. When you have a person who is fully aware that they brought nothing and God deposited the greatest, richest treasures into their life, and they walk with that reality, and they treat people out of that reality, and they engage people out of that reality, and they forgive out of that reality, and they give out of that reality. It changes the way church happens. As we begin this entire series for the next several weeks on a grace that is greater, I have to remind you that one of the reasons it was so great is because you and I were great sinners. Now, I'm going to tell you who doesn't like a message like this. People who think they weren't all that bad. I get it. This is why the Bible says that the gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block. To truly come to Jesus, you come empty-handed. 
to truly experience salvation, you have to come to terms with, I am one who needs to repent and turn. Everything else is just niceties. And every nicety is devoid of the power of the gospel that is at work. When one says, God, I have nothing to bring, but I gladly accept the gift you give. So let me ask you, Christian. When's the last time your heart was moved and softened by the fact that you weren't so awesome and God gave you an awesome gift? When's the last time that your heart was softened and moved for others as you thought about the fact that you really didn't deserve anything God gave you? When was the last time your heart was moved and softened by remembering what life was like pre-Jesus and just how profound your but-God moment was? Because if you're one of those Christians who's kind of lost that, let me tell you how that shows up in your life. The way you treat people is lacking. And there's probably damage all around you because of it. And your words will drip with the wrong tone. And there'll be a protectionistic thing in you as you're trying to protect this precious thing in you as if it's yours to protect. When in fact, Everything every believer has is a gracious gift from God. Ultimately to be leveraged for his glory and for his work in this world. So you walk around not like this. You walk around like this. It's yours, God. Take it. You gave it. This mouth, Lord, it's yours. It's a vessel. Make it a vessel of honor. The thoughts in my heart, God, they... Let them be pleasing to you. Don't let it be a place where I cultivate anger and bitterness and rage and unforgiveness. You have been so gracious to me. You want to walk in power? Return to the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. If your Christian life is struggling I just want to call you back. Remember how great a salvation and nothing you give up to hold on to Christ will be worth any reservation. Pay the price, let it go, because the return will be awesome. Why don't you take out your connect cards and let's uh, take a few steps together. Next step A is today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. So I've been talking about it the whole service. Maybe you haven't yet had your but God moment. It's very simple. God, I can't save myself. Would you save me? I got nothing to bring. So my hands are open. I receive what you have for me. The Bible says that if you'll trust what Jesus did on your behalf, when he died and when he was resurrected, you can have eternal life. I'm going to say a prayer in a few minutes, and you can use this prayer to talk with God about it. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A and put it in the offering bucket when it comes by and we'll communicate with you this week about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or how about next step B? It says, I want to be baptized. Now our next baptism is coming up, right? Just a week away. And so if you want to be baptized, a member of our team will contact you. Just check the box, put it in the offering bucket. 
And the next step, C, is about two big events as we close out our Grace is Greater message series. On February 23rd, we have a guest whose husband was murdered as he was serving the Lord. And she talks about her journey of uh, kind of coming back to terms with that and, and, and holding on to a love for people. Some of the very same people that uh, did so much damage to her and her children. And then on March 1, a young uh, a lady who was raped when she was 16 uh, thought her, li- her life was over and having to come to terms with how do you get on with life after such a horrible tragedy and the power of God at work in her to do that. So I'm inviting you to invite people to come and be with us for that. If you check them, I'll send you just a couple sentences to remind you about that. But I want to make sure you're here February 23 and March uh, one. And then next step D, Melissa told you about this. Please sign me up for a small group number. You just write it right there. Take the number from the booklet, transfer it over. And then finally, next step E is, is uh, send me an invite to RSVP for the grow classes. Uh, four weeks long, week one, week two, week three, week four corresponds to the weeks of the month. And these things help you grow as a follower of Jesus. So I want you to set that card aside. And if you call this church home, let me give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he has blessed you with. I've already told you how generous you've been, so just thank you for that. It's, it's a really, really big deal. In the next couple of weeks, we will begin to spend the money that you guys have given. And one of the coolest things that I love to spend that money on is some of our work around the world. So we're going to be sending money to Cuba to help our pastors there and the work they do. We'll be sending money to India to help our orphanage and church planting ministry there. But one more time, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you. I thought about how a dollar bill can travel. So I know a lot of us don't give cash, but just imagine you take a dollar out of your pocket, you put it in the bucket, all right? So metaphorically, go with me. And it gets counted and recorded, gets allocated to an account, and sits in that account for a little bit of time. Then eventually, that money gets spent to pay for something. It pays for a light, uh, it pays for heat, it pays for, I joke, toilet paper, pens on the seats. All that goes together and conspires together to create this environment where a lot of great ministry happens. The power of that dollar is it travels literally sometimes around the world to Cuba or to India, or maybe just down the street to New Life Mission where we feed our hungry neighbors in need. I mean, for many of us, it doesn't, It doesn't feel that powerful, but the dollar can be incredibly powerful when it is given graciously by a believer and when it's leveraged for the kingdom work of God. So just thank you for all the dollars and all the pennies you've given. It's making a profound difference. And next Sunday, as we celebrate in baptism, you're going to see just a snippet of the work that God has done and the investment you're making for an eternal difference. Let's pray right now together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. God, I want to thank you for the grace of God at work in our lives. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts today, that we would reach out to you, remembering how gracious you have been to us, that you would let grace literally flood our lives, that it would affect how we think about other people, it affect how we talk, it would affect It would impact our interactions. God, perhaps it would begin to break away bitterness. Father, I lift up today the men and women that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I trust you, Lord. I trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection to save me. And Lord, would you use our offering 
and our next steps and cause them to go far and wide for your name, for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.